Hi, I'm Father Chris Alar with the Marian Fathers here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy, and welcome back to Living Divine Mercy here on EWTN. With war, unfortunately waging in Europe between Russia and Ukraine, and now in the Holy Land between Israel and Hamas, the evils of war are all around us. War seems to, though, however, go against Christianity, since the fifth commandment states, thou shall not kill. However, the fifth commandment forbids the purposeful taking of human life. Actually, each person has the duty to preserve his life and therefore has a right to legitimate self-defense. So does the church teach that war can ever be justified? We Although an act of self-defense may have a twofold effect, the preservation of the person's life and the unfortunate taking of the aggressor's life, the first effect is intended while the second is not. That is a big difference. In preserving its own life, a state, meaning a group of citizens and their government, must strive to avoid war and settle disputes peacefully and justly. Nevertheless, Vatican II states, quote, governments cannot be denied the right of lawful self-defense once all peace efforts have failed. But such a right does not entail unlimited permission for any and all acts of war. Just war theory of the church establishes moral parameters for their declaration and waging of war. An evil intention, such as to destroy a race of people or to conquer a whole nation unjustly, can turn a legitimately declared war into an unjust one. That is why some people today protest against our soldiers, saying they are going to hell because they are murderers. No. The Catechism number 2265 says legitimate defense can be not only a right but a grave duty for one who is responsible for the lives of others. The defense of the common good requires that an unjust aggressor be rendered unable to cause harm. For this reason, those who legitimately hold authority also have the right to use arms to repel aggressors against the civil community entrusted to their responsibility, end quote. You know, this would also apply um, in many ways uh, for the head of a household, for example, if an intruder breaks in to harm their family. So to kill someone who is attacking innocent people is not murder. Catechism 2309 states, defense by military force requires, though, rigorous consideration. For instance, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation must be lasting, grave, and certain. Second, all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown ineffective. And third, there must be serious prospects of success. And then finally, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. Now, that leads to Catechism 2310, which says, 
Public authorities in this case have the right and duty to impose on citizens the obligations necessary for national defense. So the draft is actually morally okay. Those who are sworn to serve their country in the armed forces are servants of the security and freedom of nations. If they carry out their duty honorably, they truly contribute to the common good of the nation and the maintenance of peace. God bless our troops. You know, my dad always used to ask, do soldiers who die in battle actually go to straight to heaven? Well, that's not a church teaching, and I, I would always tell him it does make sense because Christ says, no greater love hath a man than to lay down his life for another, and that's what those soldiers were doing. But don't forget, though, Catechism, the next one, 2311, says, Public authorities, though, should make equitable provision for those who, for reasons of conscience, refuse to bear arms. These are conscientious objectors. These are nonetheless obliged to serve the human community in some other way. So, while military service is justified, is there such a thing as a just war? Yes, without the Battle of Vienna in 1683 and Lepanto in 1571, for example, we wouldn't have a church today. Christianity at the time was saved from being exterminated in the world by Islam. And more recently, World War II was a just war, as many died, to stop the evils of Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany and preserve our lives and our God-given freedoms, such as the freedom of worship. But even in just war, certain actions may be unjust, such as the intentional killing of civilians. That's why the next Catechism 2312 says, the mere fact that war has regrettably broken out does not mean that everything becomes licit between the warring parties. Hopefully, nuclear bombs will be avoided like gas was avoided in World War II after seeing the terrible effects of it in World War I. Then we go to Catechism 2314. It adds to this, saying, quote, Every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and man, which merits firm and unequivocal condemnation, end quote. So how do we know if a war is just or not? One great way comes from Catholic moral theology called the principle of double effect. According to this law of the church, it is permissible to undertake an action which has two effects, one good and one evil, provided that certain conditions are met. First, the action itself must not be intrinsically evil, such as killing for no valid reason. Second, the evil effect must not be an end in itself or a means to accomplishing the good effect. In other words, it must be a foreseen but undesired side effect of the action. And third, the evil effect must not outweigh the good effect. So if these three conditions are met, the action may be taken in spite of the foreseen damage it will do. An example would be the 
horrible decision in a complicated pregnancy to choose to save the life of the mother or that of the child in the womb. It was not the intent to kill the child. It was the unfortunate result of saving the life of the mother. On the other hand, even in the just war of World War II, the law of double effect surprisingly would not have applied to the cases of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the atomic bombs. In these cases, though the act of dropping the bombs was not intrinsically evil itself, and though it is arguable that in the long run more lives were saved than lost, the second condition was violated because the death of innocence was used as a means to achieve the good of the war's end. Fortunately, the United States is now committed to the principle of sparing innocent life during military actions. It serves as a liberator of captive populations in the war on terrorism, for example. But was it always this way? Many claim the early Christians were pacifists opposed to all use of violence. This is actually not true. No nation can be safe if it is unwilling to use military force to defend itself. If in the present fallen state of our world, a nation were to suddenly renounce the use of all military force, it would suffer a dire fate either from outside other nations or even from within possibly by its own citizens. Even pacifists depend for their safety and security on the generosity and goodwill of non-pacifists. Tim Staples of Catholic Answer says that when it comes to turn the other cheek, Jesus is not saying we should be doormats and pacifists. In fact, Jesus himself makes this clear in Luke twenty-two thirty-six, when he tells the apostles to take up a sword for self-defense. Surprising, huh? And while it is true that Jesus later tells St. Peter to put away his sword, this was only after Peter lashed out against Jesus' will. Jesus had already told the apostles that it was God's will that he suffer and die. And so Peter was acting contrary to Jesus' revealed will. But this does not negate the fact that it was Jesus himself who told Peter and the apostles to take up a sword to begin with. This implies the lyceity of legitimate self-defense. Jesus also praises the faith of the Roman centurion soldier in Matthew 8, 8. Never does he say that serving in the military is wrong, which it would be if he was teaching pacifism. The truth is, Jesus was using hyperbole once again in order to tell us that we are to be peacemakers. We should always seek peace, even though sometimes self-defense or even war becomes necessary, as we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And finally, unfortunately, war will always involve the loss of innocent life or the destruction of property. Thus, the community of nations should work together to eliminate conditions which jeopardize peace and therefore may cause war, such as poverty, ignorance, or substandard living conditions. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Sometimes making peace may well include fighting evil, even if it means the sacrifice of life. Thus, 
Let's continue to pray for the end of the 32 wars in the world today. Now, speaking of war back in Vietnam, we're going to tell the story now, an amazing story of Robert Gannon, who experienced the traumas and the tragedies of war, but also the difficulty of living at home before and after it. Let's hear this incredible story. Suffering is a great grace. Through suffering, the soul becomes like our Savior. And suffering love becomes crystallized. And the greater the love, the purer the soul. For most of my life, I didn't understand suffering. I grew up very angry at God. My childhood was very depressing. My dad was an alcoholic, uh, very abusive, constantly told me I wasn't worth anything. My mom was the same. And the school system was just as bad. In the second grade, teacher told my mom in front of me that I would never amount to nothing. I was the only kid in the whole town that they didn't allow to serve mass. They said, I, I was too dumb. People are making fun of you. Besides, your dad's a town drunk. And I can remember as a child thinking, you know, why are people looking down on me, you know? God tells us to love everyone, but we was the town trash. And so my childhood was faced with hopelessness, anger, and I wondered why God did this to me. I got out of high school and went in the Marine Corps because I, I wanted a home. I, I wanted something I'd be proud of. I became a recon Marine. I was in the top 1%, and I had 35 missions behind enemy lines. A lot of the missions that Robert led involved he and his team watching for enemy activity around villages. On this one particular mission, he called in artillery on soldiers that were training in a rice paddy a good distance from the village, but it didn't go as planned. I had 24 guns firing, the rounds fell short, and they landed in the village. So I told the radio man, cease fire, but we heard another volley go off, boom, 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 and I prayed God don't let the rounds hit the village, and, and, and again they did. There was a short silence. And then we heard the cries and screams of people, you know. And all I could think about is how many children were playing in the yard. I couldn't even talk about it. It was so traumatic. I mean, the next day, we watched them, a procession of them carrying the bodies of those that was killed to a cemetery. I was injured in my second tour in Vietnam and was medically discharged. When I got out, and started having nightmares, a little girl would appear. And she would just stand there and stare at me. I thought she was from the village, and it was like a punishment. And I always wanted to tell her sorry. I'd, I'd reach out to hold her in my dream, and she would disappear. Well, this went on for 40 years. I was married. I became an alcoholic, and as time went on, my post-traumatic stress got so bad, I isolated myself from my children. I'd call them once a year. I wound up just wanting to be alone. I became a workaholic because I couldn't sleep, and when I wasn't busy, the war would dominate my mind, the village. Just the thought of, of all them children being killed and the people and the men I lost. As a platoon sergeant, it's a terrible job in war because of the huge responsibility you got. People looking up to you, the men, they call me Sergeant Rock, but on the inside, I wasn't Sergeant Rock. I was as afraid as they was. 
I blame myself for what happened. I was angry at God. I would shake my fist at heaven with a bottle in one hand and swearing at him and yelling at him for what he'd done to me, not only the war, but my childhood. I was at the point I, I, I couldn't carry on no more as the last hope. I wound up going back to the Catholic Church and I picked up a pamphlet on St. Therese and I prayed to St. Therese Novena for help. Five days later, me and my wife went down to Arkansas to a horse camp. These people came from Peoria, Illinois. And when they arrived, they had the little girl. And it was a little girl I'd seen in my dreams. I'd seen her over 40 years before she was born. She was a special needs child. I never told anybody what happened to the village, but we was getting ready to leave the next day, and her and her mom came up. And I'm thinking, I want to tell her this story. <laughs> but she's gonna think I'm crazy. But I told her the story, and I'm crying, you know, and she just hands me the little girl and gets up and leaves. And she laid her head on my chest, and the whole outline of her body started getting warm and prickly, and I knew, I knew America was happening. And uh, that was the end of my nightmares. I have the memories of what happened. I don't have the flashbacks anymore. That was really the start of my conversion. I was looking for more spirituality, you know. I'm, I'm searching hard, you know. And I heard about adoration, and, and I remember the first night I walked in that room, I, I felt God's presence. And I was still angry at him, and so I would pray to Mary. She put my feet on the steps to take me back to Jesus. It was in that chapel where I could begin to love her son. What a better way to build a relationship to have Jesus six foot in front of you. Another great tragedy that happened in my life is when my wife passed away. I remember the ambulance had just taken her away. And I came in the house and I sat down and this peace came over me. And then I'm telling myself all my spirituality was just phony because I should be crying. And a priest came in, Father Greg, and he said, the first thing out of his mouth was, he said, sometimes you'll get a sign from heaven, you'll have this peace come over you. She had stuck with me through all these bad years, and I wanted to do something to honor her, and so I decided to write a book in her honor. After authoring several books, Robert began receiving invitations to go out and share his story. Meanwhile, he began reading the diary of St. Faustina over and over again, discovering the merciful father he never knew. And this helped him to begin making repairs with his own children. I never could see him as our father in the Bible, since I never had a father. But here, I see his humanity, his emotions, his love for his fellow man. And here's somebody now I want to be like. I was embarrassing to myself. I was embarrassment to God. And my kids lost total respect for me. They didn't want nothing to do with me. And there was years of mistrust. It wasn't until the miracle happened and I started changing my life. I started going to adoration. They slowly began to see the difference. And it took a while. The last time I spoke, my daughter, she goes with me now, and told me on the way home, she says, she said, Dad, you said a high bar for us. I'll never forget those words because 
I wasn't a very high bar for a long time in my life. My faith and strength has given them faith and strength. And so today, I thank God for all these tragedies. I wanted to know what it was to feel real love for your wife, your children, and God. And I feel that now. I know that on my deathbed, I'll say, yeah, my life did count for something. I did make a difference. And that's what I live for today. Not this world, but I live for the next world. Hello, I'm Brother Alex with the Marians of the Immaculate Conception at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. I'm here to talk about St. Hilary of Poitiers, a doctor of the church whose feast day is on January 13th. St. Hilary was converted through the, his study of Holy Scriptures. He was, a made, he was made Bishop of Poitiers in France in the early fourth century. He was a strong defender of the orthodox Christology of St. Athanasius, especially on the doctrine of Christ's divinity. St. Hilary zealously sought to defeat the Arian heresy, which denied Jesus' divinity. This false view was unfortunately being followed by many leaders within the church because this heresy was being enforced by the Roman Emperor Constantius II who ordered that all the bishops of the West sign a declaration of condemnation against St. Athanasius, who was another ceaseless warrior against Arianism and another great guardian of the Catholic faith. The emperor exiled St. Hilary to Phrygia because he refused to condemn St. Athanasius' orthodox teachings, but God's grace is always at work. So despite being exiled, during that time, St. Hilary wrote some of the most profound theological teachings on the Trinity, and he still fought against Arianism by guiding the faithful in the East to fight those who believed Jesus was not divine. Pray to St. Hilary for the strength to be true to our Catholic faith. We Marians pray for all of you, especially praying that you always be faithful witnesses and Jesus's life for others, St. Hilary, pray for us. Thank you and God bless. Now let's hear from Brother Joseph as he reads from Scripture about being a good soldier and putting on the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Many today claim the right to a comfortable life. Perhaps all of us would have enjoyed such a life if there had been no fall of the angels and of Adam and Eve into rebellion and sin. But the angels and human beings did sin, so we must engage in relentless battle against our own sinful desires, the injustice of the world, 
and the temptations of evil spirits. The key to victory in this battle is not to focus primarily on our own personal comfort, but to put on the whole armor of God, staying close to our Savior and Commander in the fight of all times. As Jesus tells St. Faustina, never trust in yourself, but abandon yourself totally to my will. Do not bargain with any temptation. Lock yourself immediately in my heart, and at the first opportunity, reveal the temptation to the confessor. Do not fear struggle. Courage itself often intimidates temptations, and they dare not attack us. Always fight with the deep conviction that I am with you. Fight like a knight, so I can reward you. Do not be unduly fearful, because you are not alone. Love is a mystery that transforms everything it touches into things beautiful and pleasing to God. The love of God makes a soul free. She is like a queen. She knows no slavish compulsion. She sets about everything with great freedom of soul, because the love which dwells in her incites her to action. She is not troubled if, after some time, something turns out to be less successful. She remains calm, because at the time of the action, she had done what was in her power. When it happens that the living presence of God, which she enjoys almost constantly, leaves her, she then tries to continue living in lively faith. Her soul understands that there are periods of rest and periods of battle. Through her will, she is always with God. Her soul, like a knight, is well-trained in battle. From afar, it sees where the foe is hiding and is ready for battle. She knows she is not alone. God is her strength. Well, thank you again, everybody, for joining us, and please be with us next week. As we approach the March for Life, we're going to be talking about contraception and its effect on life. Important to understand Catholic Church teaching on this matter. So until then, may Almighty God bless you, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>